0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Mind-Gut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about breakthroughs in the science and practice of health mind-body interactions, the microbiome, food, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to talk to longtime colleague and friend, Dr. Douglas Rossman, pioneer of the IBS field and author of several seminal books about disorders of gut-brain interactions, most recently the one entitled Gut Feelings, Disorder of Gut-Brain Interactions and the Patient-Doctor Relationship, a guide for patients and doctors. Dr. Drasman is a board-certified gastroenterologist and his name is synonymous with the Rome Foundation, an organization which has brought international recognition to irritable bowel syndrome and a list of closely related so-called functional GI disorders a long neglected field in medicine and gastroenterology. As the founder and longtime president of the Rome Foundation, author of some 280 scientific manuscripts, and passionate promoter of the importance of therapeutic physician patient interactions, Dr. Drossman was not only a pioneer, but has also had a major long lasting influence on the field. Welcome to the show, Doug so i want to start this with something that that you've recently added to the field and this is uh this is a couple of books and i will leave it to you to explain and 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 show the details of these books which i think are amazing everybody should read those so maybe we start our conversation with with you explaining something about what the purpose was and what the target audience is and sure well,
1: thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you asked me to do this. Uh, of course, we've known each other maybe 30 years or more. Yeah, uh, Each uh, in our interconnected ways are moving the field along. My interest has been to uh, understand the disorders of gut-brain interaction, irritable bowel, um, and understand it from a brain-gut way, but I'm much more at the clinician end rather than the basic scientist or the brain end, but I integrate those things. And the idea of the biopsychosocial model, the idea of brain-gut interactions, harmonizes very well with doctors and patients, if you can get them to hear it. And I think part of what I do is trying to market that to some degree. And that led to the development of these books. As you know, we'll probably talk later. Um, I also was involved with the Rome Foundation which targets our doctors about these disorders. But to reach patients, I created a book um, and I'll I'll just maybe share a screen and show you. This is the book, it's called Gut Feelings, Disorders of Gut-Brain Interaction and the Patient-Doctor Relationship. And I did this with a patient, Johanna Ruddy. Uh, she, She is not only a patient of mine, but we then eventually began to work professionally through the Rome Foundation and through our work on teaching communication skills. This book, I think has four very important parts. It talks about the concept of disorders of gut-brain interaction. What is the biopsychosocial model? How do the brain and the gut connect? The second part is a compendium of all these diagnoses from irritable bowel, to, to functional constipation, to cyclic vomiting. And it's done in a way that the general public, as well as doctors, can understand the pathophysiology and the management aspects. The third part is where Johanna tells her story of how she was treated. And that's a big theme in my interest is that patients can be stigmatized and belittled for having, according to the dualistic model, um, a, a trivial disease, or, or, or one that that um, is is not uh, relevant to our understanding of science. So I want to try to educate the world. And she beautifully tells her story about how she was treated until she came under my care, and how she got better. And now we're also in that section talking about methods that patients can do to talk to their doctors, just like we talk about doctors to talk about patients so she gives her narrative And the fourth part tells us what how are doctors thinking what do they think about when they want to make a diagnosis or to implement treatment well that book came out in early 2020 21 and it's done very well and that led to a lot of feedback and one of the major feedback items was how much they related to johanna's story Uh, And then I realized that patients telling their stories is not only the heart of understanding clinical skills and communication, but it gives us knowledge that we might not normally have just from textbooks. And that's what led us to write the second book, which is called Gut Feelings, The Patient's Story. And what I did is I took to eight of my patients uh, some of them are shown here to give narratives of their illness journey, what, how they were treated, how they understood the problem, uh, and then how they got better and what we learned from it. So each of them give an account of, uh, of their experience of the illness and what they learned from it. So that's the second book. And actually now, I, I did this because of COVID. I wasn't traveling much. And 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 I had time to work on this, and now uh, I'm actually working on a third book uh, called uh, the, "The Gut Feelings: The Doctor's Perspective," where I want to get doctors who are working in this area to talk about how they got to do what they're doing. So that's it in a nutshell.
0: Okay, so yeah, really worthwhile information both for you know the patients and and the doctors. Um, and as I said, I mean, like information and changing the misperceptions in this field has sort of been really a, um, it's been a long journey, you know, from the time that we first met to uh, what what these books are today. So um, let me sort of follow up on this. So um, you've spearheaded the the Rome Foundation and this whole Rome process, which um <clears throat> has really revolutionized the entire field of IBS and um, and and gut brain disorders. Which component of this process, so from patient education, physician education, disease classification, um, has been the most important in this accomplishment? That you've really put IBS on the map of of gastroenterology and uh, medicine, and it's being accepted now as, as a as a real entity.
1: Yeah, to answer that, maybe we should go back about 40 years for what it was like before Rome, which leads to why we developed Rome. And you you remember in the late 70s, um, the field of gastroenterology was very biomedical oriented uh, in terms of disease states. And the concept of irritable bowel and those conditions were very much defined by people who were doing primarily motility. Uh, the motility society, the motility section of AGA. And they tried to understand the world, the GI world, where there was no structure in terms of motility disturbances, and it just didn't work. It worked for diarrhea and constipation, certainly, but not pain, not nausea, not, not many of the symptoms that we experience or, or syndromes like irritable bowel syndrome. So I I contacted at that time a guy named Sid Phillips, who was the director of the AGA motility section and said, can we develop a group to start to look at something from the standpoint of the symptoms, not the measurement of motility? He said, sure, you can have it. And he said it in a rather dismissive way. And we formed a group called the FPG, the Functional Brain Gut Group. And, 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 and a spinoff of that was the Rome Foundation, which was an international group of like-minded people who were involved in psychology, in GI, in basic science and motility, to try to look at a more harmonizing way to look at that. And that led to um, not only the Brain Gut Society, but also, which is now the American Norgastric. And ANMS, uh, and Neurology and Motility Society, which integrates it. And that led to the Rome Foundation, which was an international group. Now, its focus was initially categorization of disease, of diagnosis. And, and, and I think when, when you asked me, is it, is it the patient's uh, education? Is it education for physicians or patient? or or, uh, disease classification, we got to start with disease classification because what we did, which was different from the field beforehand, is we were basing these disorders on the symptoms that the patients brought to us. I have abdominal pain with diarrhea or I have vomiting, early satiety. And we created a classification system based on symptoms. And that's different from disease pathology and it's different from motility. And it captured the field by defining those groups, maybe 50% of GI practice, maybe 50% of primary care practice, where you had symptoms without structure and you couldn't do the motility. That I think was the, the starting point that got the FDA interested in us because we had a basis to do clinical trials. And as a result of that, The doctors came on with it because we had criteria for diagnosis. So that's where I think our first, maybe not the main contribution. But the second contribution was for physicians and patients. Because by talking about brain-gut interactions, we were providing a rationale from what functional GI disorders was believed to be. We did a survey of the AGA in the 80s and most of the gastroenterologists thought functional GI meant you can't find something. And the second cause was psychiatric. And what it really was intended to be was disorder of function. And But it was, stigmatized, it was stigmatized because we live in a dualistic society. If you don't find a structure, then it can't be real. And and you you've been a groundbreaker in this area, just like I've tried to try to explain, you don't have to have structure, at least in a pathology sense. We do have structure microscopically, but you don't have to have structure by x-ray or endoscopy to divine a syndrome. So we gave the physicians a way to describe this entity, these entities in ways that made sense to them as opposed to the absence of organic disease, which is the way it was in the 70s and 80s. And I think for the patients who were struggling with the stigma of having pain without an abnormality and family and friends and even doctors thinking it's psychiatric, we're saying, no, it's not psychiatric. Psychologic factors in t- very much interact. Uh, psychiatric conditions can interact. But the disorder itself is a dysregulation of the brain gut actions, not a psychiatric disease.
0: This all sounds very easy now when we talk about it, but you know the the battles that led to this point is really it's it's an amazing story. I mean, I, I don't think there's anything similar in in medicine to you know that is, is is comparable to this. So, I mean, a critical point of the of this classification attempt. Um, so, some people say that the subclassification of functional disorders into more and more subgroups largely based on symptoms has really slowed the progress in the research and in the understanding of the underlying mechanisms i mean obviously there are ultimately you know biological mechanisms at the brain at the gut level but it's slowed the the understanding of these underlying mechanisms of of um, of, of gut brain disorders what, what's your arguments to that so there's now about 40 I think 40 syndromes or more or plus every, um, you know, every time the the Rome Foundation, um, I mean, the Rome process meets again, they may add additional or may change the definition. Do you think ultimately this has slowed the process? I mean, obviously it's great, brought in a lot of people that are interested in and it's engaged a lot of people, but but in terms of actually moving the needle, do do, do you think this has... Slowed or helped that process? Uh,
1: Yes and no. Um, It's done both. And I think I don't, I am not a splitter in the sense of the concept of DGBI. I adhere to my mentor, George Engel, who said, coined the term biopsychosocial model. And what we see there is that there are early derivatives in life. you've used the term exposome, there are exposures in life that could be infectious, that could be the family interaction, there could be the genetics of of what you were born with in in terms of how you respond to stimuli. And all of that is the predisposing factors. And then we have the brain-gut axis where they're talking to each other and vulnerabilities lead to the expression of, of conditions, disease states or disorders like the DGBIs. And then that translates into phenotypic expressions, whether you have constipation or diarrhea or, or vomiting or pain. And then that leads to the healthcare environment, the, the, the going to the doctor, the taking of prescriptions, getting diagnostic studies. But I think the overarching concept is a dysregulation of this axis. Now psychiatry in some ways embraces this. I mean, you've heard affective spectrum disorder where you're looking at these brain, the way the brain processes incoming visceral and somatic signals so you can have, and we know that clinically we have patients who have these certain phenotypes, like like what you might see with irritable bowel as a phenotype. But we also can see people, uh, I'm sure you've seen them in your practice, who come in with IBS and chronic pain and fibromyalgia and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and POTS syndrome. We have autonomic instability of the the vascular system. And we see clusters of those people. Well, that doesn't fit a GI rubric, does it? Mm -hmm. It's more of a dysregulation. And I think that's where I agree that this is that that maybe things have been stalled a bit because the science isn't looking at the overall system. You have, but not everybody, at the whole system. They're looking at the pieces. But there's a pragmatic. Do you want to say something before I?
0: Yeah, I was going to say. I mean, this was in in some ways. You know, what what you just said was sort of an answer to my to my third question you know what you view on this unifying model of an entire spectrum of disorders which manifest in different forms which have actually some of the same shared risk factors i mean there's a recent study a very large genomic analysis that has showed the, you know the genes are shared by anxiety and by uh, gi disorders but the genetic part by itself does not explain the syndromes it's you know what we call the exposome now that these all these other influences that can shift it in one or the other direction so there's a it's kind of an underlying vulnerability or instability of that system and depending on what happens from an infection to early life trauma to you know diet um it shifts it in a particular direction or in multiple directions you know that's so. right
1: and it can change from time to time based on additional exposure i mean i I see that as the biopsychosocial model, which has genetic epigenomic exposures to infection, uh, all of those things. They all You'll always find articles that make it the answer. I mean, you probably saw the article by Brennan Spiegel that came out about gravity. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's another hypothesis to look at. Uh, but, to, but to complete your first question, there is a pragmatic value to splitting it up. And that relates to treatment because when Rome originated, it broke it down into organ systems. And if you're dealing with diarrhea or constipation, your medications are focused on the effect or end of that disrupted system. So you need to break it down in order to do treatments for those different things. And I do think that there's a lot of interest in biomarkers. I think there may be biomarkers for these conditions that might help target Better treatment modalities, so I, I think we do have to have some subclassification for treatment. But what's causing the problem is more generalized, and that's where I, I, I agree with a the, the, the unifying model.
0: Okay, yeah. So I mean, I I think you know we're pretty more in line, um, the two of us, on this than some of the you know disciples of, of 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 the rome process who is so adamant about their you know uh, i mean i often see it working with with students when i say yeah this is this is ibs no it doesn't meet the wrong criteria that well that you know it is it is part of the spectrum and i oh. would
1: yeah well hasn't psychiatry done that with the dsm i mean
0: i i i, I remember when the
1: dsm came we both were around and and all of a sudden psychiatrists, psychiatry residents were not looking at the person and their life experience and dynamic issues, even trauma, anything like that. They said, did it meet criteria for somatization, which of course isn't in DSM-5 anymore, but whatever was the model of the criteria became the, the it was that uber alles. it was that over everything. And I think that was that's a problem when you go too far in one direction.
0: Yeah. So um, let me switch to to another question, um, which which is sort of been one of my main interests and also the interest of my two books, um, that we have imported this uh, chronic non-transmittable disease epidemic uh, during the past 75 years with increasing prevalences of a whole range of seemingly unrelated disorders from colon cancer to fatty, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to um, coronary <clears> vascular <throat> disease, brain diseases. And um, th- they have all been continuously increasing if you look at the statistics. Mortality has gone down because the billions of medications and surgeries we have been, the medical system has been throwing at it but the morbidity has been persistent, has not been uh, changed. So to me, it's been interesting that the disorders of altered gut-brain interactions have not been part of this epidemic. Um, and with the prevalence rates, as much as you can assess that you know, back 75 years, because the diagnostic criteria have changed, they seem to have been pretty stable. It, it's not the same trend. So. To me, it means it's a fundamentally different process. So, so the brain gut microbiome interaction and the role of diet plays a big role in this in this this disease epidemic. But the diet, I don't think, has really played such a huge role in causing you know. In, 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 I mean, diet has changed so so dramatically, but the prevalence rates probably of IBS have not. Um, do you think there's a fundamental difference between these disorders that these non-transmissible chronic um, disorders that we have ex- been experiencing an epidemic? And the interesting phenomenon is that the morbidity. So who gets these disorders has been increasing is moved to younger people. People now develop obesity or metabolic syndrome related problems at age 40, the same with, uh, in um, you know, early cognitive decline, uh, chronic liver disease, as opposed to the the gut brain disorders, where we don't have the data to really say what has happened in the last seventy five years, so we can say what happened in the last thirty years, and it seems it's been fairly stable, other than based on modifications of the wrong criteria, it's fluctuated up and down. And so, do you, do you think we? Dealing essentially with two different pathophysiological entities, you know, one that um, have a big component of the microbiome, in my opinion, of of chronic systemic inflammation, where diet plays a big role, chronic in, uh, dietary changes, and on the other hand, um, these gut brain disorders, where we we you know we know multiple factors can trigger symptoms and shape. In a genetically predisposed individual. So, what do you think about? Is there a fundamental difference, or or is this an, an artificial separation? Uh, I don't want to sort of get into the same uh, trap of saying, you know, organic versus functional. It's it's a different it's a different question. It's
1: uh, yeah, I, I think that there is an an overlap, but I think there are some understand. I understand it as somewhat different in the sense that the the, the, disorder, the structural disorders like cardiac disease and cancer are, are um, a wear and tear and, and exposure phenomenon that affects the disease process, the body, the cells. Um, and so premature cardiac disease or obesity are things that are structural Whereas when I look at the DGBIs, I'm looking at a dysregulation of physiologic functioning. That's not to say that there can't be a wear and tear. And I've, I've as you know, I've, I've done work in, in abuse and we know that early trauma, as an example, or even chronic pain can lead to deterioration of brain cells, neurodegeneration. And that can have a phenotypic deterioration clinically, but the symptoms themselves and the regulation seems to be somewhat isolated from a disease entity like we see with those other factors. So I guess to answer your question, I, th- I think the DGBIs are a dysregulation phenomenon in an intact individual, whereas the diseases that we talk about are the product of exposures that affect organ systems. Okay. I hope that was clear.
0: Yeah. No, it's it it's clear. Yeah. I mean, I have not come to a final conclusion on this. I've sort of been, you know, focusing on this concept of, of the these these chronic inflammatory uh, diseases in my last two books. Um, but I don't have a final answer. This classification that I suggested to you. What do what you think about it? Is not something that. You know I've proven or have have the proof for that it's it's actually it's actually uh, correct. <clears throat> um, but,
1: but the altered um, microbiome and the the mucosal immune dysregulation can affect brain function, which can lead to vulnerability to more severe DGBI, right? I think that there is that kind of connection as well.
0: Yeah, there's but, this connection, and you know, we've often wondered. I mean, why do some people with IBS also develop, um, you know, fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, which are more the, you know, low grade immune activation at the brain level, but but not not every every IBS patient has that. So it's a subset. It seems to be going in that direction. Uh, um, looking at the crystal ball. Um, so you can look back and say, okay, these things have happened during my career in the last forty years, and have been the changes have been dramatic, and the concepts that have been have come up to explain IBS and uh, you know get it accepted by even the the diehard reductionists. But looking forward, if if you could look forward even twenty years, do you think we've kind of reached a, a steady state now in the conceptualization of the gut brain model and um, the, the biopsychosocial model and it will not change dramatically it may be refined in some aspects but it it's it's not another embedded question here is do you think you will move back to a more unified disease model so going back from you know the 40 categories that we say okay, so this is really this is the spectrum and, and essentially it's conceivable that the same therapies or very similar therapies can work for all of these um, with minor modifications. Uh, do, you, do you think that's a possibility that we will move back to more a um, overarching explanation rather than sort of breaking it up into these small pieces?
1: Uh, there's really two questions. What do I believe and what do I think will happen? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am not a believer in a unifying hypothesis, um, a dualistic concept or reductionism that that there will be one overarching altered molecule that will explain this. I think, uh, I believe that we will see refinements in this biopsychosocial model where early life factors and genetic predispositions and environmental exposures, and the brain-gut axis leads to the clinical expression. And that, I think, will be refined, just like the microbiome took took hold over the last 10 years, just like food and diet is taking hold now. Um, I think there will be refinements of that. Now, do I believe that there will be a reversion back? Well, history. Western history has gravi- has vacillated between holism and dualism. The ancient Greeks were holistic. They looked at the whole body and, and the, the regular and, and the whole person as part of the body. And then came Descartes, and then came, I believe, George Engel, who coined the term biopsychosocial model. And it may be that whatever political influences may evolve, it may go back to that model, that doesn't mean it's right. Mm -hmm. I think we have a role now, it's taken 40 years, since I'm I'm using 1980 is when this change began, it's taken 40 years to come up with the the expression of the biopsychosocial model and brain gut axis, thanks to your work and others. Um, And I think that things may shift back, but the general public physicians, the payers, the NIH don't, don't understand or adhere to it. So unless we can change that, we won't get dollars Mm -hmm. to do the research. The NIH needs to understand the biopsychosocial model and not look at um, various kinds of, you know, zebrafish or whatever you want to look at to explain human illness. Once we can do that, I think we can develop greater refinements. Maybe there'll be an overarching expression, but I don't think it'll be very different from what we're seeing now. We've we've developed the concept of interacting systems to explain the clinical expression of these diseases, disorders. I think we just need more refinements. That's my belief on that.
0: Okay, I, I think this is a good statement to end our conversation. It was great. I, I learned a lot, really enjoyed it. Um, hope our audience find this equally um, informative and uh, <clears throat> yeah, I look forward to maybe you know we, we can have one in one of these in 20 years and and, and go back and look back <laughs> and see <laughs> what what has actually happened. So thanks, Doug. It was really really a pleasure. Thanks for taking the time.
1: Thank you.